Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. A lot of people ask me what my method is for picking shows that I do on the Retroist. I have a big list of episodes that I eventually want to do. Unfortunately, there's just never enough time to do them all. So what I do at the beginning of what I call a season, I will make a list of shows that I want to tackle to kind of force the issue. But selecting those episodes is a bit of a challenge in themselves. Whatever happened during the last few months, say I ate some food or I watched a movie, and in doing so, something in it captured my imagination. I try to ride that wave to keep my enthusiasm high for it. So, for example, I was very into Batman 1989 this year that just passed. I had become interested in watching it again, but then also started to fixate on some of the products and my memories of it. So, things like that are what influenced me a great deal. And something else that helps is when other people are enthusiastic for a subject. I get regular emails and messages from people asking me to cover a topic. Some I wish I had covered and still haven't. When I do cover an episode and don't release it, it's for multiple reasons, but usually it is because it's not very good. And my plan is to revisit it later. So some episodes I have tackled multiple times trying to record an episode about it and have not been happy with the results. Sometimes I'll just revisit it right away and try to do it, but other times I just let it breathe. And I have a folder full of episodes, things I've recorded that I do plan on tackling again. So if it is a big subject and you haven't heard it, and you can imagine things like G.I. Joe or The Transformers, even TV shows like The Monkees, I have attempted to do multiple times and I've just never been happy with the way it turned out. So this season, I had picked a bunch of things that I liked. I kind of got into fast food a great deal, so I had to tamp that down and not do as many episodes on that as I wanted to. Once I break myself of that, I will try to separate things, do some TV shows, do some movies. If you do have an idea for an episode, please contact me. I would love to hear it. I just thought I would share my process here for people who have questions, but I figure if you do listen to the show, you might enjoy knowing my reasoning behind why or why not I cover an episode. So what's this episode about? I'm not telling a story from my youth here at the start of the show. What I wanted to do was revisit this season, and I sent out an invitation for people to submit some stories, which a couple of people have, and I'm going to play them, and I might jump around on some of the topics that I already covered. There are some pretty interesting stories from some familiar names you might recognize. So without further ado, let's start the show.
this season, I covered two movies that I find sort of related in that they are both superhero movies that really captured my imagination around the same time. The Rocketeer and Batman 89. It's a pretty big window, but it was around the same time and they were very different. One was very light, The Rocketeer, Disney. The other was much darker than any superhero movie I had seen up till that point. It turns out a lot of people have great memories of Batman and I'd like to introduce you to Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, who has a story he'd like to share about Batman. The summer of 1989 was a big deal in our house because of the Batman movie. The movie came out in June and would have been right around the end of the school year, and my brother and I would have been anticipating its release for quite a while. We were both avid comic book readers and were Batman fans. We grew up watching reruns of the Adam West series, but we were also fans of anything comic book related that showed up on the TV or movies. We loved the Incredible Hulk TV show with the Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby, the Christopher Reeves Superman movies, and of course all those Saturday morning cartoons like Spider-Man and his amazing friends. All those things had long since passed, the last Superman movie had been released two years prior, and we were getting a little old to be watching hours of Saturday morning cartoon reruns at this point. I was 15 going on 16 and my brother would have just turned 14. We were at a prime age for a new superhero movie that featured a more mature story than we had grown up with. Our local comic shop had decided to rent an entire theater and sell tickets to their customers so that we would all get to enjoy the experience together. This is one of the first times I would experience something like this. I'd not been to any rock concerts at this point, and my first viewing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show was still a few years off. So having a shared experience on this scale with such a large group would be a fairly new experience for my brother and I, and it was wonderful. Watching that movie for the first time was amazing. It was a spectacle. The whole theater cheered when Batman made his first appearance and was enthralled all the way through the movie. It was a great time to be a young fan of Batman and the movies. Of course, the movie wasn't the only thing we got from it. Batman was a marketing bonanza. Batman merchandise was everywhere. That's not to say my brother and I bought everything in sight, but we certainly spent some allowance money when we could. I remember my brother had a black t-shirt with a gold Batman symbol on it, and he wore it all the time. And I mean all the time. He probably wore holes in the shirt by the end of the summer he wore it so much. One of the other things we had were the Topps trading cards. We were movie and sports card collectors, so it was a natural bit of merchandise to go after. One of the reasons that particular set of cards stands out in my memory is the first set of trading cards I know for sure that I completed. I can remember going through the cards regularly and marking them off on the checklist card until I got down to just needing one card. I don't know what card number it was exactly, but it was one that featured a standalone shot of the Batmobile. I can even remember when I got the card. We were visiting my dad for the weekend, and we were going to visit a friend of his and my stepmother's for dinner. That family had kids our age, so we probably spent the night hanging out with them. One of those kids also collected the Batman cards and had a duplicate of the card I needed. No need to consult my checklist, I knew it was the card because I had not seen the picture before. I think he sold it to me for a quarter or a buck, whatever I happened to have in my pocket, I'm sure, and I would have been glad to pay him for it. That summer of Batman really was the beginning of a new age of movies featuring characters and stories pulled right from the comic books my brother and I had been reading for years. It was something we had wished for countless times, that wish of seeing your favorite stories on the big screen. After all, who hasn't read a great comic book and said to themselves afterwards, someone ought to make a movie out of that. Thanks, Jeremiah. I wanted to visit some video games this season. 
I always enjoy doing video games, mostly because it's an opportunity for me to start playing them again. And I only pick games that I enjoy playing when I cover them. Be silly not to. So I did get to revisit Defender and King's Quest. I played a surprising amount of Defender, much more than I expected, especially on the Atari, which I think holds up really well. The big surprise was how much King's Quest I played. This season, I got into a new hobby, Mr. FPGA, which is hardware emulation. If you search the website, you can pull up some information. Basically, it's a little kit you can build and you can emulate hardware. So if you wanted to play, say, your Commodore 64, you can tell your mister to be a Commodore 64 and then you can load whatever games you want and it plays just like the original hardware. And it is shocking how well it works and how playing on something that's not the standard software emulator just feels more real. And that's probably why I got so deep into King's Quest, because I was able to revisit these games as I remembered them. I'm not the only one who remembers King's Quest. Vincent Bray, who has contributed to the show in the past and to the website, has a great story about his experience with King's Quest. In the fall of 1984, my father brought home our first computer, an IBM PC Jr. I was really hoping for an Apple IIc, but my dad was convinced that IBM was going to set the standard for computing. He may have been right about PCs in general, but not so much about the Jr. being a success. While my friends were sharing software on their Apples, I was the sole PC Jr. owner in my neighborhood, and I envied the sheer number of games available on the Apple. That is, until I read about a game called King's Quest. It wasn't easy to get. I had to place a special order at our local Computerland store, and it took weeks to arrive. But when I finally got it home, I was amazed. Taking full advantage of the PC Jr. 16-color graphics, the game was unlike anything I'd seen before. This was my introduction to adventure gaming, and I was hooked. The animation was gorgeous, the plot engaging, and the characters delightful. Even my mother, who was generally skeptical of computers, joined in the efforts to solve the puzzles. For the most part, we did pretty well, except when we were stymied by the parser. Now, here's a warning for some minor spoilers. When we were playing, we discovered that just because we knew how to solve a puzzle didn't mean we knew how to type the answer correctly. For example, typing show carrot to goat yielded a positive outcome, whereas my repeatedly typing show goat the carrot did nothing. This was especially frustrating to me when I had successfully obtained the three treasures necessary to complete the game, but I couldn't get the king to acknowledge me. I tried typing bow when I was in front of the king, but it did nothing. Eventually, I learned that bow to king was the proper syntax and delivered the game's conclusion I'd been waiting for. King's Quest was easily my favorite game on the PC Jr. and is still one of my all-time favorites. I eventually added a memory sidecar to my PC Jr. so I could play subsequent installments. I've played countless games since, but few have captivated me as much as King's Quest. Thanks, Vince. Finally, if you listen to The Retroist or read the site, you'll know I'll talk about my time working in a video store it was formative for me, and I'm really glad it happened. I had worked in many other 
kind of retail spaces, folding newspapers at our corner store so I can get quarters to play their video games and drink plenty of YooHoo. Then I worked in an ice cream parlor for a while while I was also delivering newspapers for two of the local papers. But things really changed when I finally got to work in a video store. I had been going to the video store in my town as often as I could. I would just wander around, and one day the guy who worked there said, are you going to rent something? And I said, oh, I'm just looking. And he offered me some money if I would organize the tapes. And so I did. I went around and just sort of cleaned up, tried to do as good a job as I could. And he said, why don't you come back tomorrow and do the same? In a week, I was behind the counter. It would be probably a couple of months before I would actually get to take people's money and give them the tapes. But it was the start of something great. And I would go on to work at another video store after that at our local mall. And a lot of my great memories come from this time. And I learned so much from so many people who loved movies and TV shows. It really helped a great deal and made me feel not so alone in the things that I loved. I'm always sad that these stores don't exist anymore, these congregating points, because while I think community is great online and you can find nice ones about just movies, there's something about having to deal with people in person that makes things very different and pushes you out of your comfort zone. You just can't turn off the screen when there's a person in front of you talking about dark shadows while you try to do other stuff. And even if you are not really plugged into what they're saying, you still learn a lot. You also learn a lot about formats. And that's why I was very interested in covering the Laserdisc, because it is always something that captivated me, and still does today. It's just beautiful technology. Just hold a Laserdisc, and it looks like the future. I'm not the only one who has memories about the Laserdisc. Vic Sage, who many of you might know as a contributor to The Retroist, has come back and given us a story that he has about Laserdiscs. I happened to be working at the local movie theater of my youth when I first heard about Laserdisc technology, and it sounded almost too good to be true. The reason for that being that, unlike a VHS tape, I could get bonus features, everything from deleted scenes to commentary from the filmmakers and cast themselves. I learned all of this thanks to one of my fellow co-workers at the theater, who invited me over to his house to check out his setup. My jaw dropped and practically hit the floor when he inserted Back to the Future into his player. It wasn't just the picture quality, but the surround sound that just made watching anything on VHS seem obsolete. There were two small hurdles to overcome before I was able to get my own player and start building up what would eventually be around 100 Laserdiscs. The first was the pricing of the player itself. I had to save up the money. I had about two-thirds of the cost squirreled away when suddenly I received a Sears credit card. The bigger hurdle was trying to convince my father that the amount of money I had spent on the player, the receiver, and the surround sound system was worth it. After getting everything set up, I had him close his eyes and sit in the chair in the middle of my bedroom. And while the wires running all over the place were easy to trip on if you weren't careful, I started up Jurassic Park and skipped ahead to the T-Rex escape scene. He knew what the movie was, of course, but when I pressed the power button on the surround sound, he jumped a foot and opened his eyes. As you might expect, he thought it was a waste of money. And yet, he always wanted to watch the latest Laserdisc that I picked up. To be fair, when I first started collecting Laserdiscs, the only real place to pick them up was Suncoast. 
and I could find a few at FYE, so I bought most of mine through the Columbia House program. And my first four were Reanimator, Maniac Cop, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, and Phantasm. My co-worker at the theater helped me out quite a bit too, selling me his still impressive collector's edition of both Tron as well as the Star Wars trilogy definitive collection. Sadly, all Laserdisc collectors will have to face the dreaded laser rot. Although it doesn't affect the player, but those large discs, especially if they aren't stored properly, meaning they will eventually become unreadable. For what it might be worth, I happen to work at a retrocade in my neck of the woods in northwest Arkansas called the Arcadia Retrocade. Shortly after the doors first opened, nearly nine years ago, I donated my entire collection. The reason being is players who want to take a break can pop into the party room with permission and check out whichever film we have on repeat. I have many, many fond memories of Laserdiscs, which is why I'm still adding to the collection. Thanks, Vic. I hope you enjoyed this season of The Retroist. I have another season cooking up right now. Already started doing some recording on it, and I think you'll find some nice surprises in it. I'll probably post about a release soon. In the meantime, I'm doing members-only episodes over in Patreon, which if you can, why don't you come over there? It's at patreon.com retroist. We hang out a lot on Discord and talk about a lot of these topics. And I like to release bonus tracks and member-only episodes over there as much as I can. Thanks to the three contributors to the show. You can follow Jeremiah on Twitter and at his blog. He's at BigOx737 on Twitter. And his blog is comicscomicscomics.blog. Say it three times and the comics appear. Thanks to Vince Bray, who's been a longtime contributor to The Retroist and always has some great stories. A couple of years ago, he wrote a great post about how David Prowse, who played Darth Vader in Star Wars, had basically spoiled the end of Empire Strikes Back in 1978. And it was a phenomenon at the time. It made it onto other blogs. He also discovered software that had been missing. So Vince is a great guy to know. He doesn't do much on Twitter, but he still has a Twitter handle. So you should follow him. Maybe that'll encourage him to do some stuff there. He's at B-R-A-Y-V-T at Twitter. And you can also find some of his stuff on The Retroist. Finally, it was really great to have Vic Sage back in Retroist land. Vic was a longtime contributor on The Retroist, and he still continues to do some of his own podcasts at popcultureretrorama.com. And you can follow Vic on Twitter. He's at VicSage2005. There you'll hear information about his blog posts and many, many podcasts. Saturday Frights, Diary of an Arcade Employee, Vic is prolific. Of course, for more retro fun, you can drop by the site at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com retroist. If you want to support the show, please give it a positive review wherever you download it. It does help people discover the show. I can't say it enough, but thanks again for continuing to listen, and I hope you have a great weekend. Hey, what better role model for a 10-year-old than an aging Jack Klugman? This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.